Lorraine Spence is a diehard traveler, and although she rode a motorcycle as a kid, she didn't for many years, and then was reintroduced through the reading of a book. She decided to make her first trip after that reintroduction across Asia via the Bam Road in Russia. Now, the Bam Road could be considered one of the last true challenges for adventure motorcyclists, a dilapidated service road for the railway that cuts through Siberia and requires planning, determination, and some luck to make it all the way. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manikin. Ed Simon. Austin Vance. Simon Pavey. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Jarvis. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Graham Jarvis. Chris Birch. Quentin Smoke. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. It's wind pressure that powers the MotoBreeze chain oiler. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm. No nozzles near your sprockets. One ounce of oil gets 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets. MotoBreeze.com. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters. CyclePump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com Just a note before we begin, some of what we're talking about today is Lorraine's trip on the Bam Road in Russia. Now, this trip was done years ago and long before the powers at large threw their country into a terrible situation that they're now in. So keep that in mind. Okay, so um, my name's Lorraine Spence. I'm originally from South Africa, but I currently live in Switzerland. And my day job is IT project manager, but I don't like to think of myself as an IT project manager. I think of myself more as an adventure traveler um, and other things. Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. So you want to avoid your your professional uh, designation as much as possible. <laughs> yeah, just, um, you know, people have always got a habit of uh, meeting you and then saying, what do you do? Like that defines you. And an IT project manager, you, you know, you sit in an office in a big corporate and type all day. And it's, um, yeah, it's so not me, but it's pays the bills. I, I do like my job, so don't get me wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, what I'm finding nowadays is that people list themselves as all kinds of things. You know, they'll say, I do this and this and this and this. And really, it's the things that they do. I mean, the, the whole defining yourself is kind of a tough one, isn't it? I mean, who who's like, who are you really? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and it is your profession does seem to put you in a box and that really isn't you. It's just a, a part of you, um, you know, except people that that really follow their passion and, you know, that, that that's um, that's awesome. But um, I think most of us, we just sort of have day jobs that we hopefully like 
And then, as you say, we're defined by everything that we do, which is uh, traveling or snowboarding or walking my dog. (laughs) Yeah, because that's really where the passion is. I mean, granted, Mm -hmm. what you do for a living does bring some skill to the table. And certainly like, you know, for you, for a project manager, that definitely spills over, I'm sure, into everything that you do. You have a certain way of looking at things because of the way you're trained to do it professionally. So I think it certainly affects us. But yeah, I I think it's what you do. It's what you're passionate about, unless it's your job that you're passionate about. Some people, maybe if you were, well, I don't know, whatever, I guess you could be anything. But I guess if you're truly passionate and you live and breathe that, that, that's you. But in this case, you know, being a project manager, it isn't how you define yourself. I mean, you probably rarely yeah. bring that up. So let's talk about what you're passionate about. How do you get passionate about travel by motorcycle? Oh, that's really interesting. I think, I mean, I think my dad instilled this, um, this sort of sense of adventure in me since, since I was a kid. Yeah. Um, he always wanted to travel more. Um, he actually rode bikes. He rode bikes up until the age of 82. And, um, he he loved riding, but he, he although he did a few trips around South Africa, he could never travel as much. I think my mom held him back a bit, and so he tried to instill that in in us kids. Like you know, took us away as much as possible, and and always spoke about traveling and things like that. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I've just you know, as as the minute I could uh, you know sort of leave the nest, I started traveling, and I've saved. I constantly save my, my whole life. I spend a large proportion of of my salary in you know on, on savings and therefore on traveling purely to travel. You save it just for travel. I save it just for travel. I mean, I have savings for other things, but it's really yeah. That's, like, that's <laughs> I wasn't trying. Thing. I wasn't trying to oversimplify things. But no, your, no. Your, your dad instilling this in you and and your siblings. What did he tell you about travel that made it sound so interesting? I think. I mean. I mean, as I say, he 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 did a bit of travel, and he was a pilot, but he was a private pilot, and and he he didn't become an airline pilot. And um, I think he it's literally just the passion that he spoke about going overseas and wanting to travel. And and when he did do uh, his couple of trips, he would leave with such enthusiasm and he would come back with such enthusiasm mm. and he would come back with all the stories about the food he ate. So, you know, think, things like that. I think people might, you know, come back to their kids and be like happy to see them. But, you know, he would tell us about, um, I know this is not politically correct nowadays, but he ate shark fin soup in Japan. And I mean, mm. you know, we're talking 50 years ago. Yeah, so yeah. sort of coming back and saying like, oh, guess what I ate, you know, and, and talking about it with, with such passion and the things he saw. Um, and when you grow up hearing things like that, it's just sort of bigger and, and better and, you know. He always spoke about chasing your or your dreams, you know, sort of, sort of um, being able to do that. Like, um, yeah. Usually, when people talk about chasing your dreams, it usually has to do with work. I mean, a lot of yeah, time, right? No. You know, <laughs> chasing your dreams as if we should dream about work. <laughs> What's the deal with that? I, I have no idea. But I mean, that's yeah. usually what it is. But this is this is yeah. chasing your dreams for for exploration. And um, yeah, how many siblings do you have? Um, I have a brother and two sisters, and um, I, I must say it, it's interesting that point that you make because, um, as I say, my father was a pilot. My my brother followed in his, his footsteps, and my brother's sons they all fly, and that is their passion. I mean, they eat, sleep, and breathe mm-hmm. airplanes like 
you know, if they have five minutes free, it'll be have something to do with airplanes. It, it's it's quite a ridiculous obsession. Right. Whereas the rest of us, for me, I remember someone actually offered me um, a, a years ago um, a job um, uh, as a as a guide on on motorbikes, and at Instantly, I thought about it and I thought that would be amazing. But the minute I stepped back, I was like, no, actually, I don't want to do that because then my passion becomes my job. And I know people that do it and it's awesome that they are happy doing that. But I have this real clear line between my work and then my passions. And when, I, when, I, when I'm riding a motorbike or whatever, snowboarding and that, I don't think about work. So I like yeah. to keep it separate. That, that's a delicate line to walk. And I think just like you said, some people can do it, others can't. And some try it and, and find that it doesn't work out. I mean, it's, it's great if you can do it because obviously nothing's better than doing what you love to do every day for, for a living. Uh, yeah. I mean, you see that more in the arts, don't you? You see that more with, with um, artists, musicians, things like that. Where yeah. they're, they're passionate about what they do. But, but even that, you do hear the stories of people who get sick of doing it, or it turns out, and, and I know I've done this throughout my life as well, turn my, my passion into a vocation. And, and at times it works, but other times it sort of exposes areas of it that you don't really like that much, you know, not really that comfortable with uh, on a day to day yeah. basis. So you've recognized that and kept it separate. But, but I was asking about your siblings because I was going to mm-hmm. ask, are they travelers? Did they pick up the same thing you picked up from your dad? No, I mean, my, my brother, yes, um, through, I mean, through his flying, I mean, my, my brother actually flew for the United Nations and he's flown in Iraq and Georgia and um, um, Iran and I mean, all, all of these amazing places. Wow. Yeah. So, so he has, um, but um, my, my two sisters, not really, they're, they're quite homebodies, which mm. is interesting. So they, they kind of maybe followed my mom. <laughs> <laughs> do do yeah. you think that they're missing out on life? Oh, wow. That's an interesting question. And I'm going to say absolutely yes. And that's not just because I love traveling, but I'm sure you found this. If you've ever sat down at a, you know, if you get invited to a friend's house or something and you sit down and you chat to people, you immediately pick up the travelers and their sort of broader outlook on life. They're, I'd say, maybe more compassionate about things um, because of what they've seen. And I think real travelers have that, I mean, besides just being interesting, I think they, they do, they have a broader outlook on life. They have more compassion about things um, and they don't just show you pictures of their kids. I think that sounded really negative. I didn't mean that too, but I think you know, you know what I'm trying to mean. Yeah, no, and that could sound like kind of snobbish in a way, you know, like a traveler snob. Oh, you're such a traveler snob, you know, you, because you've been everywhere, you've done, you've seen everything sort of thing. But if you think about it, even on a smaller scale, I mean, if you were, if you were into fishing, let's just take fishing for an example. If you were very much into, let's say, fly fishing or something like that. If you start out in, in, in fly fishing, and I probably shouldn't have picked this because I don't know anything about fly fishing, but, but I mean, if you start out, you could probably quickly say, oh, well, that lure will get that sort of fish. But somebody who's been in it for a long time has a, what you said, broader perspective and would say, well, you know, yeah, that's, that's not quite the case. I mean, it will for sometimes. It's just that you, you tend to know more about something and you tend to look into things where I often say that you, when you get to the point where you realize you really don't know much about what it is you're doing, that's when I think you're starting to get the lay of the land. It's where you've seen the map of your, mm-hmm. of your horizon. You realize it's just, it's huge and there's so much to learn. And I think this is with everything in life. 
So, I mean, I think that's what you're, you're describing what you're getting from travel is that you get a lay of the land. You, you're starting to see, you're not just seeing your neighborhood and, or a part of your country. You're getting a taste of the whole thing. And yeah, I mean, that's got to change the way you see things. Yeah. And, and it's so interesting, that point that you made, actually, because um, I went to Horizons Unlimited, um, I, I must have been oh, probably six, seven years ago. I've been to many of them. There was one in Germany and there was a young guy who did a presentation on traveling around the States and going up to Alaska. And it was absolutely fantastic presentation. And and I've also you know, traveled all over the States. Um, and there was this little bit of an attitude among some people that was like, oh, the States are so boring. Why, why don't mm. you try? Why did you travel there? Why don't you be more adventurous? And and I was actually a little bit almost upset about that reaction to him because honestly, I mean, if you try to, I mean, if you told me to make sushi, um, I would go into full on panic mode because I can't cook. So it would be the biggest adventure to try and learn how to cook that. So it's it's absolutely irrelevant where you go or how you go or, or what you do to get out of your comfort zone or what adventure you follow. Um, and, and there is in everything, some people have that little bit of that snobbish, I'm doing it bigger or better. Um, and, and you find that everywhere. But I think just the majority of travelers that have really been out there and, um, you know, done it, have a, a nicer mindset. I think you find the odd ones that, as you say, have that snobbish, but I think you find that everywhere. Um, so, so it's really interesting what you say about that. It's um, it's almost like that purist point of view, isn't it? Where you think yes. that, well, to really do this properly, you must do this. And I'm wondering, does that come from someone who's dabbled in something but wants to be seen as greater in it, therefore creating the snobbish attitude? Or is that someone who's done so much of it, they're sort of bored with the smaller things? I think it comes from someone who hasn't done enough of it or hasn't done enough with the right mindset. Mm. I think that's the thing, you know, if you, you can travel and you can be open to really seeing what's out there and, you know, the world is, is an amazing place. It's beautiful and it's full of beautiful people, but you've got to look at the grime to sometimes see that as well. And some people just want to look at it with rose colored glasses sort of thing. And, mm. and yeah, and I think that maybe the more you do it, the more you see it and, and the more you maybe even hold back on the stories you tell people around the dining room table because you'll hold back and you'd want to listen to what they say and their perspective instead of being the one that just constantly says everything about everywhere that you've been. Um, yeah, I guess it's the same as going back to the people with their kids, you know. Well, on your travels, do do you learn about that? Do you learn about personality and dealing with people or do you more learn about cultures? Because I'm thinking of what you're describing there where you're sitting around with people and you've learned that to keep some stories back. Is that something you pick up by traveling and going different places, meeting different people or, or are you learning something else there? Do you not get that from travel? Mm. Oh, I, I, I'm not even, I'm not really sure about that. I'm, I, I think it's a mixture. I think it's um, sometimes you're born with 
or you develop a curious mind. And so you want to listen to to people's stories and things like that. And when I travel, I don't want to sit and talk about where I've been. And, and, and I do do that. Please don't get me wrong. I do that all the time and that. But, but I want to listen to what the people are doing and, and I want to understand their culture and, you know, everything about them, which is why I love staying with people when I travel, you know, staying at their houses or like doing bunker bike or whatever. And I just have that mind where I like to listen to other people talk as well. I am, I'm a chatterbox. So I, I do talk a lot, but I do love to just listen to other people's um, opinions on things. Um, I'm not like hugely into politics, but I do follow and and like like I love to sit at someone's house and I'll bring up politics so that I can hear their actual opinions rather than what you see on social media or something. Um, so like when I traveled around the states, it was absolutely fascinating to see that actually everyone is kind of really just in the middle somewhere. It's <laughs> just not what you imagine in America where, you know, people are like way on the right or way on the left. Like very few people are like that actually. Well, I mean, so, it could be what you're visiting too. Don't forget your, 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 uh, your sample could be tainted <laughs> you know, because you're seeing people that are interested yes. in travelers, et cetera. You, you, what you're saying is, I mean, that's, that's a bit of a hotbed. I mean, you know, people say religion and politics, don't touch it. And you're going into people's home and almost stoking the fire to say, so what do you think about this? And that's just so you can get a feel for it. I mean, that's, yeah. that's a, a, like a, a novel thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I, I, I will say that I am super careful about voicing my opinion in those situations. As you say, I'll stoke the fire. I'll get the conversations going so that I can listen to what people really say. And um, and then I've often had to really hold back on my opinion where I just go, wow, my goodness, you know, this is just <laughs> extreme. Um, and then I kind of hold back because I think I might be thrown out the house or something. So. Well, when you are experiencing this around the world, do you, do you find your opinion, like as you've sort of gained experience traveling, learning more about the world, do you, do you recognize more about your opinion and what it really is? Oh, absolutely. Oh, I tell you, you, you never, I mean, I believe you never really get to know yourself as much as you do when you travel, especially when you travel on your own, um, which is one of the things as you say, going back to, as you asked, like, uh, do, you, do I think my sister's lost out on something? I think the people, I always encourage young people to travel because I think you just learn so much about yourself. I mean, if you can't sit on your own in a restaurant or, you know, in, on your own in a, in a hotel room or, or a tent or something, um, you've almost got a problem. You know, you know, some people can't be on, they can't be with themselves sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So I think you just, oh, you hugely learn things. And, and I think you also change your opinion. I mean, I, I think definitely the more I travel, the more I know that I, what I don't know, and the more I change my opinion on things. And that's what I'm wondering is it, because your opinion is just your opinion is exactly what it is. Yeah. D does that soften that? Because what I'm saying is that people will stick to their opinion and, and feel like with some dogmatism that it is the fact and the singular way to view something. But I'm wondering if travel exposes you to so much that you realize that I may have an opinion, but I know I'm very tainted from, from my surroundings growing up, whatever I've learned. 
Yeah, I think so, because I think it's like, um, you know, on social media, when people are shouting at each other and, and people always say, like, you will never change your opinion with someone shouting at you. But when you're traveling, if you take that sort of more passive view and you listening to other people's opinions, you might not change there and then. But over time, everything they've said will sort of go into your brain and that might slowly but surely change what you think. But I think more so actually just meeting the people themselves. Um, so I, I'm not a very religious person, but I have met some people. And again, like I, I don't like the people that are like really, really preachy and, and tell you you're going to burn in hell if you don't, um, you know, change your ways and that. But I have met some people that really walk the walk and you're like, wow, you know, that, that's the kind of person that would make me want to follow a religion. Mm-hmm. You, you know what I mean? So it's yeah. that kind of thing. I think it's just through, you know, passively meeting awesome people all over the world that your opinion does or can change. Lorraine, do you have a lot of motorcycles in your garage? <laughs> We're totally changing track now. Yes. Good, good no, no just bear with me here. My thought process. <laughs> no, no, no. Because I was just, I, I was thinking back to you saying about your savings. So, so first of all, like, are there a lot of motorcycles? No, there's, there's only three, but the two of them belong to my husband. I just have one. No, because you said you save your money for travel. And I'm just sort of wondering when you say save your money for travel, are you mm. saving the money for an amazing bike with amazing gear or is the bike transportation? Like why the bike for travel and what does it mean to you? Oh, okay. So that's so interesting. Um, so <laughs> I have generally had the oldest, most in most de- decrepit, I think is the right word, decrepit single cylinders that I've traveled on and I've loved them. They're, they've got character and, um, you know, they were the bikes that I could afford um, or that I just enjoyed riding. And, and I just got so into riding single cylinders that after my trip in 2000, when I went across through South America um, on my little old, you know, 650 single cylinder KLR and it, it, it died in the States and it, it got left there. And I came back and I said to my husband, I think it's time I put on my big girl pants and got more than a single cylinder. Mm. And, I mean, I, I, it's just because I love single cylinders, not for any other reason. And um, so I went around and I tested absolutely everything and I got on a Triumph Tiger 800 and I fell mm. in love in 15 minutes. And absolutely love it. I think I'll have it for as long as I possibly can. And for traveling in Europe, it's absolutely perfect. That it's like a really comfortable bike, but it's easy. It's so easy to travel. Whereas I think on things like more off-road, um, the single cylinders are ideal for that. Why is it that we always talk about getting a bigger motorcycle as moving up? <laughs> I've never, <laughs> never really understood this this thing, and everybody does it. You know, they say they say um, they often make the 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 off comment of I upgraded. You know, they upgraded from the four hundred they were riding to an eight hundred, for instance. And and I I admit, like, there's something about power. There's no doubt about it. It's a lot of fun, but it doesn't diminish the 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 fun that you have on a small bike. Yeah, that's true. I I think actually, honestly, I think you have more fun on a small bike probably. Um, And that's a really interesting thing. I wonder why people do that. 
But it's very true. It's it's, very true. it's strange. And, and yeah. I often think that, is it started at the dealership? <laughs> because that's a great oh, thing for a probably. dealer to do, right? You should upgrade that old bike. Upgrade and get a little bit bigger bike that's a little bit more money. And it'll yeah. in my pocket. But anyway, that's another thing. I'm being mean to the dealers now. But, <laughs> <laughs> but so, so this bike for travel then. So it's not the motorcycle as in that you don't have to ride the perfect motorcycle. It's the mode of travel. It's, it's the motorcycle yeah. as a mode of travel. So what is it about that? Yeah. Um, it's, oh, honestly, it's, it's just the, the freedom and being able to get off the beaten track. So I've done a lot of backpacking in my life. I mean, as, as early as I could start traveling, I was backpacking on a shoestring and I went everywhere traveling, you know, that way. And you use a lot of local transport and you can get on buses out into the countryside and that, but it's always very difficult. And it was actually when I wanted to take time off work and go and do another long backpacking trip because I've always sort of worked for three to five years, saved like crazy, and then gone and done like six or 12 months traveling. And it was at that stage where I was like, I really want to take a long break from work. And I read Lois Price's book, um, Lois on the Loose. Mm -hmm. And I had my motorbike license, but I hadn't been on a bike for, for 20 years. And I thought, well, hang on a second, this is maybe a better way to travel because that way I can get off the beaten track. But under my own steam, I don't have to be, you know, adhere to a bus timetable or something. You know, can I even ride a bike again? And um, I got on it and it really was like riding a bicycle. And I just thought, wow, oh, this is so much fun. How have I not been on a bike for the last 20 years? Like, you know, why did I do that? Yeah. And um and that was it. And and I think I did. I thought, okay, I'm going to get a bike and I'm going to go across Asia. And, and and it was literally instantaneous. It just, you know, it was a bit of an epiphany, I guess. And so I got the bike. I did a short two-week trip or a week's trip somewhere in Germany just to be absolutely sure. And yeah, and, and, and that was it. And then the plan started falling into place. But it, it was just about that reading something which gave me another, you know, as I say, I've got this really curious mind. It's like, oh, that's a bit of a different way to do it. Do I want to go and backpack for six months or how about trying this other way? Because yeah, I'll try anything. So it wasn't just a mode of travel change, you changing from the bus to a bike and saying, yeah, okay, this gives me some advantages. There's something more than the, yeah. than the sum of the parts there. Is that's what you're describing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, ab absolutely. It was a whole new adventure. It, it was a window into a, a different kind of adventure, really. Yeah. What is it about the bike, though? That, that like, what does it do for the adventure? What if you can it? possibly put that into words, because <laughs> you know, because you're still traveling. I know it gives you the freedom yeah, to go off yeah. in a different spot and 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 your own schedule and everything. But there's something more there, and can you put that in words? Oh, I, honestly, I, I don't even think, I don't think I could put it into words, but, but what I can say, I mean, it, it, and, and this is such a cliche. I mean, you're going to make me use the cliche of freedom. <laughs> it is such a cliche, but it's so true. Mm -hmm. It's so true. And, you know, when, when you're traveling every day, there are mornings where you, you do, you sort of wake up and you're like, oh, I'm really tired, but I had a plan to you know, get somewhere or I've, you know, I've, I've made arrangements to stay with someone. So I really have to you know, get up and, and get going now. And you get on that bike and within 10 minutes, all your energy's back and your smile is back on your face. And mm -hmm. it, 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 it really, 
it just gives you something that I haven't found in many other places except you know, I guess snowboarding as well, something like that. But, but it, it really is this, this, you know, childlike feeling of joy. And yeah, I mean, who sits on a motorbike and doesn't smile? I know. Like I, I love, you said childlike. That is, that's beautiful. I haven't heard it said before. That's, that's great. I mean, <laughs> and when you say freedom, it's not the freedom to roam where you want or make a left turn if you want to. It's the wind in your face. It's that exactly. feeling of going along on two wheels. It, it, it's kind of yeah. like, you know, dancing in your kitchen as a, po- and that might be backpacking, dare I say that, dancing in your kitchen at home or dancing on a stage where you're fully dressed for dancing, you know, and the music yeah. is vibrant and you are there in the moment. I mean, that's yeah. riding a motorcycle on adventure. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. You're so right. And oh, it's so interesting that you say there in the moment, because, um, you know, that is something it's, you know, going back to sitting at a desk all day, that is, it, it's a real challenge to live in the moment. And it's something I'm, I really have to think about, you know, I, I try and meditate and I've got all these stress issues when I work in it. On your motorbike, you don't need to think about it. You don't need to try and be in the moment. It's just yeah. automatic. It's just there. You mentioned your husband and you mentioned two motorcycles. So why do you travel alone? I do both. Um, I I mean, even when I was backpacking, I'd backpack on my own. There is just that I really get these itchy feet to travel, but to travel on my own. I mean, there, there's some weekends I'll just get in my car with my tent and my dog. And, and, and there is something in me that just needs to do these things on my own. Um, so, and, and I love traveling with my husband. We get on really well um, and we, we travel it very much in the same way. And all the big trips that I've done across the continent. So I've done, you know, a few of them and I've always mixed it up where I do a part on my own and then a part in a group or with my husband. So, um, yeah, um, I'd probably say like when I went to, I mean, the States was a short trip. It was only three months. So it was like two months across the States. And then my husband flew out and joined me in Canada. He can't take as much time off work as I can. Um, but then I had those two months on my own to like rejuvenate myself. And then I had a wonderful time with him as well for the, for the month in Canada. The traveling alone, the, the comfort, the longing for, for some time traveling by yourself. Now, that's not necessarily alone. It's, it's just traveling by yourself. So it's not like you're going into the middle of the desert and sitting there. So you're yeah. still seeing other people. But is that something that you learn from, from traveling or is it something you've always felt you needed to do to get out there and do things on your own? Um, I'm not honestly a hundred percent sure. Um, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Hmm. I, 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 I don't know. Um, I would say possibly it's always been there and traveling was the one way to, to have that, um, I guess. Um, but it, it, it's interesting what you say about traveling on your own and, um, that is that is such a special thing you said because that's so true. You're never on your own, and it's um you do things on your own, and you're on the bike alone, and that's awesome. But you do always see people, and and it is so interesting because it's also like when things go wrong. Well, generally, you know, someone will be around. You know, you learn mm-hmm. you learn to interact with people in the, in a different way, and that and ask for help and things like that. So, so no, you're right. You're never quite on your own. But I guess 
on your bike, you're on your own. And it's also when you travel on your own, it is the most selfish time you will ever have in your life. And and in a good way um, mm-hmm. that, you know, you really wake up and decide, do I go left or right? Or where do I eat? Or, you know, do I pitch a tent? Or, you know, is it raining? And do I decide to stay in a and b or something like that? It, it's without asking anyone. So it's a very selfish time. Yeah, and you're you're really solo. You're you're not alone. Yeah. You know, and I think there's that you know when we get really nitpicky, yeah. that's the distinction between the two because yes. we need fuel every day or every couple of days. So you're going to see yeah. people, and that's all part of it. But when you're riding when you're riding your bike, as you said, you are alone. You're very much in your helmet. That can be the same though when you're with a group. You could ride with a group, which you've done before, and be very much in your helmet. But but you you've had um, you have well you had a group. I think you had one experience there that that almost turned you off of group riding. Can you talk about that? Mm, yeah, yeah. So, um, I, uh, so, so first of all, when, when I went across Asia, I, I was in a group and they were absolutely fantastic. Just so awesome. I can't even describe it. And then when I went to South America, I thought, okay, I really want to do the Amazon. And I did a little bit of research and I, I started speaking to, to the people that do these tours and that, and I thought, oh, okay, this is the kind of thing that I really shouldn't do on my own. Um, you know, maybe cause they were like, oh, you, you can't get fuel everywhere. Like you need a support vehicle. Um, so I thought to myself, okay, let's be sensible. Maybe it's it's just not the kind of place I go through on my own. So I, that's why I joined the group. And I'd specifically mm-hmm. ask them, do you get GPS coordinates? And they meet like I, we had in across Asia. So you can kind of sort of be on your own, but make sure you meet at certain points. And they assured me that was the case. And it wasn't. And so you had to ride in a group and there were 13 bikes and a support vehicle, 17 people all together. And you had to stay in your group. Now, I'm a slow rider. I like to take my time. And this particular group, although the people were, a lot of the people were super nice. Don't get me wrong there. They really were a nice group, but they were all about speed. And I was like, they literally don't even stop and take a photograph. And we're going through Ecuador. Like, what the hell? No. And then I felt so pressured to keep up. And I was like, you know, like asked why I was so slow. And I was like, I want a little you know, <laughs> really old single cylinder here. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't the bike. Again, it was me, not the bike. I'm, I'm a slow rider. And, and, and I just didn't enjoy this constant pressure to get to the hotel and, and you know, then, you know, it, it, yeah. So they, so they weren't clear really with the way they ran their trip. And and then also yeah. that many people, I mean, you get a group that size, it's slow. It's it's just slow getting go- organized. Everything moves, yeah. tends to move slow. Um, I mean, in your case, you're saying they're riding fast, but I mean, as far as the group itself goes, that's a, that's quite cumbersome. So that that's unfortunate. So did that turn you off? Yeah. So, so I mean, I'll, I'll just give you one more example of that. So I'm um, especially going through somewhere like the Amazon where you're arriving in these tiny little villages and there's also cities in the Amazon. Don't forget that. But these tiny villages where it's like seven, you know, 17 people, 13 people, however, at a time would arrive and they could literally only cook for four or five people at a time because that's, that's their customer base. Oh, right. And so we would spend two hours having lunch. Mm. And then we would get somewhere in the, like at the middle of the night. So I have the rule about, you know, getting to wherever you're going in daylight and we would be arriving at like eight o'clock at night. So, um, the whole experience put me off so badly and 
I guess in a way it's unfair and I might maybe try a, another group again at some point, but I, I would, you know, I mean, I'd rather just be me and my husband or if I tried a group, it would have to be a very special, you know, circ- circumstances and I would really interrogate them <laughs> horribly about, to how you know, they run it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. Did you take your own bike on that or was the bike supplied? Yes. No, it was my own bike. Oh, I see. So you shipped your bike over and and rode it. How long was that trip? Um, That was eight months. So I did um, South and Central America and a little bit of um, the States um, as well. So up into Mexico and and I'm across Tennessee and then I sort of stopped there. And the the, the end part was just rushed to get to Tennessee where I've got family. Um, But it was, uh, yeah, South and Central America and uh, yeah. And the the group ride was eight months? No, oh, so so sorry. No, the um, my, my trip was eight months. The group ride was fifty-two days, so oh, like six yeah. weeks. Um, That's a long time, anyway, to to be riding with a, a group. But I, I thought you said eight months. I thought you were saying well, eight months with a group. I was like, That's a oh, long yeah. <laughs> time to spend with people that you didn't know yeah. before you arrived there. Yeah, I mean, the, as I said, look, the the people were nice, and and some were nicer than others, and I've kept in touch with some of them, um, who were great as well. Or it, it could have been worse, but it wasn't like the group I went um, when I did the Bam Road, who were just, I mean, we just clicked. So, yeah, it and and that's always when you do join these groups, you you never know, mm-hmm. you just never know. Well, I think a lot of the companies do the uh, the uh, meeting, like a, especially nowadays, they do online meetings, et cetera. So you have a better idea of what you're getting involved with now than back in the day where you would have just, you know, signed up and show up and meet the people there for the for the first time. Uh, you, you mentioned, though, you, you did the, um, the trip, the Asia trip. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you about that because I'm mm-hmm. particularly interested in the BAM road, which you mm-hmm. did. First of all, what was the trip all about? take a quick break and we'll be right back. Okay, little word association for you here. Cold, wet, smelly, uncomfortable. Those are words that other riders use about their feet. Riders that have not yet experienced the incredible warmth of the world's best cold weather socks for riding. Pearly's Possum Socks. Pearly's Possum Socks are made of a unique blend of possum fur and merino wool and knitted into a sock meant specifically and directly for riding motorcycles, resulting in the warmest, most supple, durable sock that has ever been. And those natural fibers, the possum fur, the merino wool, they wick away moisture from your skin. Those natural fibers cannot be synthesized by man, period. Those natural fibers also have lanolin naturally in them that refuses to let bacteria grow. So no stink. I'm wearing my pearly possum socks right now, not because I'm riding, obviously, but because they feel great and they keep my feet warm on this cool floor. I use them for riding, but I also use them for almost every other outdoor activity in all four seasons. If I'm wearing boots, you can bet I'm wearing pearly's possum socks. That's because I know the value of the best cold weather socks money can buy. Pearly's Possum Socks is the official sock of Adventure Rider Radio because I am so taken by these things. Pearly'sPossumSocks.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Pearly'sPossumSocks.com. If you're serious about riding and serious about getting the most from your motorcycle, 
it's a really simple thing you have to do. Get rid of those stock foot pegs and replace them with IMS Products foot pegs. IMS makes a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs designed specifically for adventure riding. The owner of IMS is Scott Wright. Scott is an avid adventure rider and former Baja 1000 winner. So you kind of get a feel for where that passion comes from that goes into this line of motorcycle foot pegs. I'm going to walk you quickly through the the three series that they have there for us. The ADV1 and ADV2 foot pegs are large foot pegs. They spread the weight out of your foot on that foot peg. Very comfortable for large stretches or open stretches of road rather. It reduces stress on your feet, your legs, and your hips. So fire roads, highway, long distance, these are wide platforms, ADV1, ADV2. The Rally Series is a, an aggressive foot peg, sort of for the, for the next level rider. They also spread the weight out from your boot to reduce stress on your, on your hips and your legs, but they're a smaller foot peg than the ADV1 and ADV2. And then the Core Enduro, the Core Enduro foot pegs from IMS are for more technical, aggressive riding, right through to racing, of course. They're, they're a smaller peg, and you can get them with a very aggressive tooth design that really keep your feet planted. So if you ride very technical things, that might be more of a peg for you. They're also much smaller, so less chance of them catching anything on the outside. I really like these pegs. IMSproducts.com is the website. They warranty all their pegs for life. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. Um, so that was the, the first like uh, trans, you know, transcontinental trip. So I went from Zurich to Singapore and um, I, I did the same thing again. So, um, you know, on my own and, and in a group sort of mixed, it, landed up about 50-50. Uh, was six months and and that was um, as I say that's the one after I, I read um, you know the book uh, Lois Lois Price's book and I just wanted to have a break and go backpacking but decided to do it on on a bike and um, I how I even chose Asia I'm not 100 percent sure I, I love Southeast Asia I love traveling there but I had never been to Russia and um, so it was also the time of year it had to be in the northern hemisphere. So there were sort of those were the different reasons why I landed up choosing to go across Asia. And while researching, like going across Asia and what I wanted to, you know, what countries I wanted to go, what route I wanted to go, I just came across this um, this company that was offering a trip, and it included the BAM. And and you know, when I looked into it, I thought, wow, you know. I don't do things by half measure. First time, you know, back on a bike after twenty years, let's ride across a continent and do the BAM road. <laughs> Sounds like a good idea. And um, it was, it, it really was. So, and and that was, I mean, I, I was again, the, the sensible, I sometimes have a sensible part to me. And that was the sensible part where like, okay, that's not the kind of thing you can do on your own. Um, I, I, I've met people that, that have, but even now with all the experience I have, I, I wouldn't do it on my own. Um, so that's why I joined the group to do that. Now this is because the the route is so treacherous. There's there's so many things to deal with, and particularly water crossings. Yeah, yeah, there there, there are. It is. Um, there, I mean, yeah, it's it's kind of 
I, I mean, it's not off-road like um, you know, trail riding that I do in that, but, but the road is is incredibly bad and very, um, you know, very tricky. It's and it's, you know, it's not the kind of place that if you do have a bad accident, someone's going to come past you in half an hour. You know, you you really mm-hmm. could be waiting, you know, maybe over a day or a couple of days before someone would find you in certain parts of, of it. Um, and um, yeah, a lot of water crossings, and then of course the the, the hectic bridges and and the um the railway bridges that you have to do as well and the Witten bridge um as well and so as i said I've, I've met people and i know people that have done it on their own but um they're just uh, clearly tougher and, and physically stronger <laughs> than i am <laughs> well you have to be pretty <laughs> self-sufficient don't you or something like that we'll, we'll talk about the, the yeah. bam road what is it mm-hmm. okay so the um oh no my, my goodness how do you pronounce this the the Baikal Amur mainland, I think is how you pronounce it. I'm not going to do justice to that. So um, it's the, so, so you have the Siberian railway and then you have a parallel ra- railway and this is the service road that services that. And and that is, that's just a, um, you know, it's not like a tourist railway. It's, uh, it's more for, you know, industrial uh, uh, things and that. And it's it's not as used as much as the um, uh, Siberian trans Siberian they call it. So it's it's kind of becoming a, a bit um, you know uh, not uh, how can I say not well looked after in that. And so the service road that supports it is just not maintained at all. So it's kind of similar. I, I haven't done the road of bones, but it's it's very similar. It's just much, much longer. Um, and it was also made the same way by, you know, prisoners um, and things like that who built up a lot of the road. But the main thing about it is that it is the service road to this um, Baikal Amur. I'm sorry, I, I can't believe, I can't remember the, how to pronounce it properly. Um, railway. So it's a service road for, for that. Um, and it, it's, it's, as you mentioned, it's, it's falling into disrepair, but I mean, that, that's probably yeah. the a gross understatement when you look at some of the pictures of the bridges. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and I think it's interesting. I think they just, they do more on the railway itself than, than on the road in, in the sense that I think they can, um, they just don't need to um, keep the road. Uh, a lot of the towns along the way are just getting smaller and smaller, you know, um, and yeah, they, uh, what can I say? It's um, I don't I don't know how it became this um sort of biker road that that people want to go and do that. I'm not quite sure how that transitioned or or how that came apart, but it's become yeah. a. I don't yeah. know. I, I know Austin Vince. Uh, he did it. I think at at one point, which is um, that that's uh, um, Mar- he Austin's married to Lois Price, who you mentioned about reading her book. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and there was also another, another fellow, I think who did it a fair number of times, but I don't know really where it came about. I guess some people are looking for a real, um, tough ride is what they're doing. A, a, a proving ride, you know, to, to prove yeah. yourself on your skills and your ability to get through. Cause I think it's, it's not only skills, it's also your ability to be kind of, you know, resourceful, isn't it? I mean, where you're, you're fixing things. I mean, even on your trip through there, you've got pictures of you guys repairing the bridge parts to try and get down mm-hmm. off of them. Um, so what, what was it like? Yeah. Yeah, uh, it, it it was honestly fantastic. So um, the, I mean, I, I I loved the riding because I mean, especially on long trips. And as I said, sort of you know, when I'm on my own, I am a little bit more sensible, so I don't go as off the beaten track as doing something like the BAM on my own. So that gave me the opportunity to really get off road and do some really, you know, gnarly stuff and and, and just 
thoroughly enjoy it, but in, you know, with the safety of, of people around me. And um, so I, I thoroughly enjoyed the, the road itself and, and the challenge of that. Uh, the group I was with, as I mentioned before, they were really great. And we all really kind of came together because there are parts you, you really have to help each other. You on those really broken bridges. I mean, you you can see the pictures of those bridges, but you can't really get the feel of them until you are on them. They are literally falling apart. And there's there's some of them, they've, they've just got holes in them like looking down and you've got to stop, you've got to walk across, you've got to pick a path of where you're going. And they they have these weird iron things that they've somehow bolt onto the bridge in, in no pattern or no, you know, they're not, um, you know, you know, parallel or they're just haphazardly stuck all over. Big iron plates with bolts going through them. Exactly. Big iron plates with these bolts going through them just random. Well, it looks random, but it's obviously there's a reason, but, but they're not all like perpendicular to the bridge or something. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if you just rode across and they obviously can be really slippery because it's also very wet. So you've really got to get off and, and walk and, you know, make sure, and you test the bridge as well because they are falling apart. So you make sure that the, you know, they're, they're okay to carry the weight. Um, and you know, sort of pick your route. And there were some parts where the holes were so big, we managed to find sort of planks to put them on to get off the bridge or on the bridge or something like that. So um, they are uh, just this incredible experience to come across that and and then work out how to do how to really get across it safely and and, and ride across them. So so that, that that's quite fun. I, I find the bridge is quite fun. I find the road quite fun. Um, the, the really hard part was the, the railway crossing. So, because, so there's some river crossings that are, it's quite shallow. So it's just a normal, um, you know, river crossing and that's okay. And then, um, the other ones, the bridges, but where the river is too deep, um, and the bridges completely collapsed. You have to go up on the railway bridges because the railway bridges, obviously it's, it's still a working railway. Mm-hmm. Um, so in some areas, you know, you can get up and, and it's really quite short and you ride across and it's not a problem. There are other areas where the railway bridges are really long. And obviously there's no timetable. You have no idea when a train is coming. And you have to, first of all, get up that on, you know, like there's, um, you know, they have a lot of, it, it can be quite high, you know, a, a couple of meters and it'll be those sort of gray rocks about the size of a fist. Mm-hmm. So you've actually got to somehow get up onto, you know, up that onto the railway and then right across the railway, just hoping to hell that a train's not coming. And, and I found that really hairy, you know, that, that, that to me was the, the difficult part I think most sane people would. I mean, you if you don't, I think there's a problem. But so what was the game plan though? Lorraine, when you when you're doing this, you must have said, What if a train comes to whoever was with you? What's the game plan? Yeah. So so we we had um, you know, really sat down and discussed this and it was a case of you jump off your bike and and, and that's it. So if you're on a place that's not that high, you can kind of push your bike over, hopefully save your bike and yourself. But if you're actually on one of the bridges or one of the, you know, where, where it's, um, you're sort of really steep, the, the plan is you jump off your bike, you save yourself, wow. you jump off your bike, cheers, bike. Um, 
And so, yeah, we, we really had to, had to think about that. And, and you know, the, the funny thing is we didn't see that many trains, but as I say, it's just, you have no idea. Was there any putting your ear down to the rail and, and stuff trying to hear? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we, we did that. It's pretty creepy. It really is. And the logistics of it is yeah. you're yeah. riding between the rails. So for the most mm. part, like you said, unless there's a raised part, you've got quite a barrier. And, and if anybody's tried to ride over a piece of steel like that with their motorcycle, you find out just how difficult it is unless you're completely perpendicular to it. So that's, uh, yeah, that's pretty ner- um, unnerving rather to mm. to experience that. Wow. Exactly. And, and the thing is, you don't get up and go between the railway tracks. You're actually riding on the side. So it's actually quite narrow. So, you know, you've got this, the sleepers or whatever they call it. So you're kind of like oh. bouncing along oh, right. on I the see. sleepers, like bounce, bounce. And it's quite a narrow, you know, um, a space as well that, that you're riding along so that you're not in the middle of the of the tracks so or you do have a chance to to get off. And um, I think the there are a couple of bridges that are that long that they actually post guards and um, they stopped us riding across. So there were three instances where um, you've actually got to go to the station master and get permission to ride across. Now, um, we had, because we had a support vehicle, so we were in a group with a support vehicle, which was just another huge challenge getting this car onto these railways. Um and, uh, you know, it, so, so that, that was a different challenge as well. But on the railways where they stop you, they possibly wouldn't have stopped us if we didn't have the car, but they won't let the cars go across. So you've mm. got to go to the station master and get special permission to go across. And then what they normally do, because there are other people in the area, they will wait until like four or five o'clock to see if someone else has the same issue. Um and then they'll put you across at the same time. So on one occasion, there was one other, you know, big um, a four by four car that wanted to go across as well. And so we had to wait the whole day until the station master gave us permission. And then they put this like caboose or whatever in front of you with this like crane. And so if your car stops or whatever, they'll just pick the car up and throw it over the edge. <laughs> They're like, we're not stopping you. You've got 15 minutes to do with this. That's it. Um, so we sort of had that situation and then there was one station master that refused to let us go and there were no other cars that wanted to go. So he made us put the bikes on a train and then take the train to the next station and get them off, you know? So there was like all these other logistical things that go with it, um, and I think it might have been because we had a support car because I haven't met anyone else that just had bikes that had that problem. They could either bribe those guards at these massive, there's only like these three massive bridges, or they could just somehow get past them when they weren't looking or whatever. Um, when most of us think of the BAM road, you think of remote Siberia. So when you're t- saying guards and people, these are at places where there's towns around, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, when I, when I say town, so in um, Akunda, there's 200 people in the town. So it, it's like mm. these little villages. They're, they're, they're really tiny. Um, and I mean, the, the whole time you, they, you, you're camping, I mean, there, there's no sort of hotels or B&Bs or anything, you know, so it's all wild camping. And they've very, very small little towns and then they're very small villages and then a couple of smallish towns. And what do the people do? Do Did you find out what they do for a living or how they get by? Well, that's interesting. Um, So most of them, they they do still work on the railway. 
And, um, you know, there, there is some farming in the area and, and some industry. I think, you know, probably, um, as you say, Austin Vince or someone else would know more about what they did. And um, we, we met quite a few people. We've actually met the local doctor in, in Kunda. And um, you met the fantastic couple that actually put us up for a night with them. They're just like random people walked up to us you know this is what's so wonderful about russia and and traveling in that and um they saw we all looked like bedraggled drowned rats because it had rained for like five what well, rained for the whole nine days when we were on the band but nice. you know we'd live at that stage it was five days and um and they just took us in and that was just fantastic. So, so they took us in, they put us up and the local doctor, they got the local doctor because she could speak English. And um, we got on really well and we had some really good chats. And, and she was telling me that there's, there's so little work in the area that she really has a massive problem with drugs, um, especially with the younger generation because there's so little to do. But there is a power um you know, gas, uh, um, uh, gas lines and things like that, that, that people do work on, but uh, just sort of not enough. So uh, that was quite interesting as well. It's sad how drugs and alcohol find their way into oh, places like that, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. I was absolutely shocked. I, I really was. So it was a really, some very interesting conversations with her. I was really, really surprised because um, she's sort of the, the doctrine in that whole, you know, larger area, but the town itself, as I say, only had like 200 people in that. Um, so yeah, it was really, really sad. And you're riding your own bike on this one as well. Yeah. 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 I had a, a DRZ 400 on that. The oh, nice. absolute perfect bike to take across Siberia. Um, yeah, it was a top, top bike. You mentioned the rain. You, you, mm. you said you got soaked. How'd you deal with that? I, I don't know. I mean, th this is where <laughs> you just learn about yourself, you know, <laughs> honestly. Um, it's so funny because, you know, at home, my husband, he's from Denmark and, and he will ride where it's like, you know, 11 degrees or 18 degrees. And I'll be like, oh, no, it's too cold. Oh, no, I'm not going riding with you today. <laughs> But there, you just do it. I, I, I don't know. I mean, everything gets wet. I had foot rot because um, oh. my socks and shoes, everything was wet just the whole time. And you just somehow, I, I, I honestly can't even say how, how did I do it? I loved every minute of it. And the rain was just, well, yeah, it rained all the time. Um, and bearing in mind the, the people that I was with, I mean, they were a laugh riot we were just laughing all the time. And I mean, they were from Mexico and Malaysia and Australia and, you know, the UK wow. and then me from South Africa. And, and we just got on like a house on fire and just, you know, took the mick out of each other all the time. So <laughs> it wasn't just you having fun. Everyone's yeah. enjoying this, even though it's raining and you're soaking wet and, and you're camping in this. Yeah. 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 And, and, and I think that's the big thing. I think if, I was with a different group of people. It could have been the worst experience or, or, or something like that. You know, I mean, we didn't have any major accidents or anything. Um, you know, we all, if there were areas, I remember um, I've got a really nice photograph of, of um, Caesar, Caesar, this one guy like going around this corner where, where we had to sort of dig, um, you know, quite a big area out to make it flat to actually get the bikes up onto the railway track. And, you know, everyone would get out and we'd all be pushing bikes and digging bikes. And, you know, there was no one that was, you know, um, Caesar fell off once in 
uh, doing a river crossing and everyone just like rushed forward at the same time to go, you know, we all got soaking wet, um, pulling his bike up. And um, I think it was a different group. It, it might've been different uh, situation, but um, I was lucky that way. And, and I guess also, I mean, maybe because it was the first trip that it's so special, but I think it's also so special because it was uh, the people that I traveled with. Now, I understand this trip, this adventure on this trip didn't exactly end there. You did run into a bit of legal trouble. Tell me that story. So how do you, how do you end up in court and how does that turn out in Russia? Okay, so... um when you go to Russia, you can get different kinds of visas. So um, you can get like a, a business visa, or, which is like multiple entries or single entry or double entry. Um, and I could only get a double entry. And then in Mongolia, you can go to the Russian embassy and get another visa. And they only gave me a 10-day transit visa or otherwise I'd have to fly back to Switzerland to get a longer visa. Um, so I went back into, so from Mongolia back into Russia on a 10 day visa, but wanting to do the BAM. And so I knew I would go over the visa mm. and I was like, okay, well, I'm, I'm just going to do that. It'll be a few days. And I just thought, you know, I don't know. Uh, I, I'm sometimes I'm stupid, you know, <laughs> anyway, so I did it and I did the BAM and I'm so glad I did. And I loved it. And then coming back, I had all the bike trouble. But I mean, I was way over my visa even before the bike broke down. And then I got towed to Father Mike, um, you know, the, 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 the Russian priest I mentioned. And I was there for 10 days and, um, you know, they really struggled to fix my bike. They managed to get it fixed, but it, it was just absolute disaster. And, and, and we knew, I knew I couldn't carry on on this bike and it would have taken them a month to six weeks to get parts. And at this stage, I was now 30 days over my visa. And so I thought, okay, at this point, well, the thing is I didn't plan on spending 10 days there. So of course, but at yeah. that stage, it was almost 30 days. And I thought, okay, um, I really need to go and speak to the authorities because my plan was after the BAM, I'll get to the border, you know, back into um, uh, Mongolia and go, oops, really? You know, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the old play dumb thing, maybe for a small <laughs> fine and away you go. Oh, yeah. And women can get away with it sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I thought the worst thing they'll do is get me across the border or ship me you know, home. I mean, they're not going to lock me up. Yeah. So I really thought that. But after being almost 30 days, so I thought, okay, I better go to the authorities. So in Irkuts, um, I went to the, the, the customs people and the, and the guy threw the book at me. Oh. I mean, he was not impressed. And I had... I had hired, well, I had got hold of someone, an official translator, Andreas, who was just so sweet and helpful. And he took me and this guy, he took my passport, he took my fingerprints, he opened a file on me, the mug shots, and he wanted to lock me up. And Andreas persuaded him not to do that and to say that he would take responsibility of me and that I was staying with Father Mark and all this kind of thing because this guy wanted to put me lock me up until he got a court date for wow. me. And so fortunately that didn't happen. And um, you know, that, so he didn't lock me up. So I went back and they managed to get a court date two days later. So I mean I was just really on one hand I was super nervous, but I also thought do they really put you in prison 
for things like this. I mean, they normally just ship you out the country. So yeah, you think you'd be deported and, and maybe maybe yeah. not allowed back, but it, exactly. And then I thought, you know, and then my whole trip's over. So I was nervous from that perspective, but not that I thought really I was going to go to prison. Mm. Um, but anyway, so I go to court, but you know, that was really daunting. And this lady judge, this woman judge arrives. And she sits on this this massive chair and whatever. And Andreas sits next to me. And you know, translators, they're just speaking that monotone and they're just like constantly in your ear, like telling you exactly what's going on. Mm-hmm. And she is having a right go at this customs guy. Like she's raising her voice oh. and shouting at him. And Andreas is saying to me, she's saying to him, why are you wasting my time? This lady is, isn't is here illegally because she wants to be her bike broke down. Because I just spun the whole bike sure, story and course. made it bigger and better. <laughs> and, and, and so she had a right go at this guy. It was absolutely, it was, it was so funny. <laughs> and at that point, you know you're not going to prison. Exactly, exactly. And then she went and did her like deliberation or whatever. So she went out of the room for a while and then she came back and she, she walked up to me. She didn't go and sit on her, on her chair again. And she said, um, look, you know, you, you really are over your visa. And, um, so I have to, you know, do something. I have to find you. And she fined me like 200 rubles and I couldn't come back into the country for six months. And I had 10 days to leave the country. Mm -hmm. And then she turned around to me and she said, I really hope this doesn't, um, what was the word not taint or the words gone out of my head, you know, um, I really hope this doesn't give you a bad experience of oh. Russia. And oh. I thought she was so sweet. And she was like, and then she was just like spoke about, you know, the fact that I was traveling on a bike and she was so impressed by it and everything. <laughs> so it turned out again, you know, there's something that's, that's negative. And again, it's like you're breaking down or whatever that turns around and actually turns into this positive experience. And, yeah, this 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 is quite yeah. unique experience as well, and and also changes your perspective on the authorities oh, that you're exactly. dealing with in a foreign country. I mean, because it's easy to be scared yeah. of that. Exactly, and especially because, as I mentioned, the police and and you put a uniform on someone in Russia, and and you know, like you pay attention, you know, you you really care for what you say, and and that was like this customs guy, but here is the real authority, like a mm. much more senior person, and they're just like really pragmatic and human and you know telling him that he was just wasting her time so um so that was quite good and this is part of what what you get from travel when you're saying about your perspective that you get from travel the 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 thought that you have that 99.999 whatever you it, it said there percent of people are good people yeah exactly wow. absolutely absolutely yeah was that the toughest trip that you've ever ridden yeah, I think, I mean, physically, I think, let, let's say physically the most demanding trip, um, definitely. The, yeah, I'd say, yeah, physically the most demanding, the, the, the toughest with regards situation would have been the Amazon because of the people. Um, also because you can ride the Amazon on your own, by the way, you, you don't need a support car. There, there is mm. there is petrol, there are towns, there are even cities, it's ridiculous. So you can ride the Amazon on your own. So that was the toughest with regards, you know, holding my tongue and being patient and and, and dealing with it and trying to just enjoy it. Right. But for physically demanding, the BAM road was the it. The BAM. Yeah, that, yeah. And that's what I thought. I mean, to me, it's yeah. like, like it's one of those, 
iconic, toughest routes. I mean, I, w- I would love to do this. It just seems like one of those things that would be so incredible to do, but it's not something you want to do on your own, is it? No, no. And and that's the thing. Even though I love doing things on my own, I think, I, I don't think I'm physically strong enough and tough enough to do it on my own. But even if I was, I think it's such an experience that, like, I would love to take, take my husband back there and do it again with mm. him. And it, it is, it's just a very special, unique experience. And I think it is the kind of thing that I would want to share with someone and, and make it more enjoyable. Because I think on your own, it would also be so tough that, yeah, you would prove a lot of things to yourself, but I think it just might not be as enjoyable. You're camping on your own after a really tough day in the rain and not having someone to just crack a joke with, you know. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah. I thought you were going to talk about the safety aspect of it. But it's in, it, it, that you, but you're talking yep. about sharing it and 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 obviously having someone there to help as well. But yeah, so you, I mean, you do solo travel. You've already said that you you like solo solo travel. Is that do you find that's a that's a marked difference between when you're riding something on your own as to when you have your husband or somebody else with you that that there's something that you're missing on the solo travel? Um, no, I, no, except that I don't go as far off the beaten track on my own as, as I do. So I miss that. There are sometimes there are places that I might want to go that I just think, okay, um, that might just not be quite as safe on my own. I, I can't even think of an example off the top of my head, um, to be honest, but I think something like that. And I think, I mean, I, I don't even, I mean, I'm quite comfortable to just sit in a restaurant on my own, but I think maybe, yeah, I guess there might've been times where I just, you know, after weeks and weeks of, of doing that or cooking, you know, your own meal, you know, while camping, you just think, yeah, you know, it would be nice to chat to someone. But um, I do a lot of homestays and that as well. So I can't say that I've really, there's anything that I'm missing. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I've also had, you know, I had a lot of bike trouble um, being on my own and Honestly, I guess those would be the times where you're just like, oh, damn, you know, I wish you one was here. You know, I wish someone was else was here with me. You mean mechanical problems? Mechanical. Yeah, oh, exactly. But that is also where you can have the best experience of your life um, because of the people you meet. So sure. when my bike broke down in Russia, um, this young couple um, you know, stopped to help me. They were on a, um, a GSX a Suzuki. I think it was called a GSX, um, a, a small, like a 650. And they towed me for like two days oh. and they towed me to a friend of theirs who's a Russian Orthodox priest who rides Harleys. And I stayed with him uh, for 10 days and just had the most awesome experience and, you know, met his family and I met... I mean, I've never been fed so well. The woman in the church just constantly fed me like it was, <laughs> you know, this homeless waif that they needed to look after. And so, you know, that experience of if I wasn't on my own, maybe they wouldn't have stopped or, you know, it might have just been a completely different experience. And and that was so fantastic to stay with Father Mark um, in this church. And uh, yeah. Those are the times. So, as as far as traveling alone and the and the the thought process, aside from the Bam Road, the Bam Road being something that's that's remote. So, is there is there risk traveling alone? Like, for instance, when it comes to breakdowns, or, or do you just break down and and then 
someone comes along. Like, I mean, like Ted Simon says in his book. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. I mean, you know, it's funny is your people, I've had people criticize me and tell me I'm stupid to, to do this, to, to travel on my own. Um, I genuinely, genuinely believe that 99.99% of the people in the world are good people. I, I really do think that. Mm. And I, I, I'm not a big fan of big cities and really traveling, I think, more things happen to people in big cities than in remote areas. So, you know, if you're traveling in farmlands and, and things like that, I mean, even, you know, coming down from from Yakutsk, um, you know, after the BAM, going all the way up to Yakutsk and coming down on my own, if, if I stop to take a photograph, the truckers always, always stopped and they'd put their thumb up and they'd ask me in Russian, are you okay? And I'd put my thumb up and say, yeah, fine. And they'd wave and go off because in remote areas, people help each other. Right. Um, so I think, I honestly think there's, I mean, maybe there is a risk, but I've never worried about it because, um, yeah, someone will come along and, um, people are generally help other people. I've, I've, I have so many stories of, you know, people helping me. It's, it's incredible. When people are saying you're crazy for, for traveling solo, are they saying solo or solo female? I think they're saying solo female on a motorbike. Mm. And, and so that. are there risks in that? No. Um, I've had harder experiences backpacking as a female with the way certain people treated me in, in, in certain areas. Um, and again, because I guess maybe the city thing, I don't know. Um, so honestly, I, I've had more, I've had worse experiences there. Whereas on my motorbike, I've just had unbelievable support and friendliness. Um, and I think I, you know, camping wise, you, you have to be sensible. I think, um, you know, so, so let, let's go back to, to the trackers, as I mentioned, the one thing that I will say about Russians, and this is, I don't mean to be, you know, talk about stereotypes and that, but I, it is something I literally witnessed for myself is that in these areas, the people start drinking at four o'clock, they're drunk at five, and they are absolutely motherless at six. So, <laughs> you know, when I was on my own, I had, you know, a hard rule to find somewhere to stay by your know, four, five o'clock. Um, I generally stayed in trucker stops and I'd make sure I got a room to myself and they always let me book because they, they, they normally have like sort of little dormitories with you know four to six beds, whatever. And I'd book the whole thing. I'd say like, I want a thing on my own. And they'd be like, absolutely. They always let me do that. And then I would get something to eat and I would just lock the door and I'd be on my own at five o'clock and I could hear the, you know, the revelry going on downstairs because they, they often have like a little canteen or restaurant and I would have got something earlier. And I, so I think you have to be sensible, maybe more sensible as a woman just to not put yourself in that situation. And maybe there are cases or instances where I miss out on certain things because of that. Um, cause I like hold myself back a bit, mm -hmm. but so far it's always worked well for me. And I'm then I feel like just really comfortable and, and happy and I don't need to worry about things. So you say maybe, maybe there was, uh, maybe there's a, a reason that you, or maybe you're, you have to be a little more careful. So by the way you're saying maybe you have to be more careful, it's like you don't have anything to really back it up. In other words, 
you're just doing it out of, out of precaution. You haven't really run into much terrible things. Yeah. I mean, not, as I say, not traveling on my bike. I mean, backpacking, I've had a couple of instances, but not, not I mean, yeah, don't get me wrong, not, not, nothing super bad, just uncomfortable situations. Yeah. Um, because I guess I also, you know, remember I, I backpacked when I was much younger. So you, you would go out and, you know, you would go out drinking and, you know, partying with people from, you know, the hostel and things like that. Um, and, you know, touch wood, like nothing really bad happened, but there were uncomfortable situations. Whereas I think being on the bike, I also, I'm not a big drinker now and I don't like to ride with a hangover. And so I think maybe because of those other cases that I'm a little bit more sensible, I'm also that little bit older and maybe worldwide. Yeah. It, 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 I'm wondering if, if people look at you on a motorcycle and um, think you're more independent, um, maybe, yeah. maybe more, more firm minded as well. Yeah. I think actually, you know, you know, you're quite right. I think there may very well be something like that, um, to be honest. You know, a solo woman getting off a bike on her own, taking a helmet off, and you're like, mm, okay. Yeah. Like she you knows know, what's going I'm, on here. This is. I'm, I definitely don't look look like a, a tough chick. <laughs> you know? No, and I don't think you have to. I mean, I, I know I've had. I, I can't remember who said it. When I was talking to somebody one time, and they said there's a there's a victim look, and and I never have the victim look when I'm somewhere. This is a guy who was saying it. I, I think it was Chad Horton. Oh yeah. You, know, he's, you don't you don't travel that. In other words, you you look like you know what's going on. Yeah. It's your demeanor. Yeah. Oh, that's so true. That is so true. Mm. And I think. Maybe somehow you naturally do that more on a bike. I, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I maybe think you're right. Yeah, yeah. I have to tell you just a funny story. Is talk about you know taking your helmet off and being a woman in in Kazakhstan. Um, I was actually so with the same group. I went across Kazakhstan to um, Siberia where I, where I um, did the Bam Road, and uh, we were stopped. You know, you, you you get stopped a lot by by police. Um, you know, in both Russia and Kazakhstan, and it, it's all you know part of the corruption under the table. A situation, but um, in Kazakhstan, the police were so funny because if I took my helmet off, they'd go, Oh, no, lady, lady, half price. Uh, <laughs> it wow. made me pay half of the, or, or there was one who just let me off. <laughs> it's not, <laughs> I mean, I love being a woman, but in those yeah. cases, I was like, Oh, sexism is alive and, and wow, yeah, <laughs> <That's> cool. <true. laughs> That's right. I just got such a kick out of it. Well, it's funny, you didn't, you didn't uh, not accept though, did you? <laughs> of course not. <laughs> of course not. Oh, it was really funny. Um, they, they were just a laugh riot, the, the police in Kazakhstan. Uh, Russia's a little bit different where, um, yeah, you, you, you just don't want to mess with them. Um, you know, Russians are awesome and I absolutely love the country. But the anyone with the, with a uniform, they, they have a different mindset. Um, whereas in Kazakhstan, they were just so funny. We, we really, really enjoyed them. Hey, you tell people to step out of their comfort zone and embrace the unknown. What do you mean by that? It's so easy to live your life in, or in your comfort zone. I was going to say in a rut, but I didn't mean that. Um, So it's just so easy. You know, our, our brains, you know, psychologically, our brains are geared to protect us. That's what we do. Mm -hmm. And, and if, if you don't push against that, I think you lose out on so much. And and it doesn't have to be traveling or riding a bike. I mean, as I mentioned, cooking, whatever. Um, you you need to be curious. You need to push yourself out of your comfort zone. Because I think, first of all, I think you grow 
more as, as a person and um, you can just experience this, this, these amazing things. I mean, if, if you, you know, if, if you just have to look at social media and you would think that the world is falling apart and that people are awful mm-hmm. and, and they're not, the world is absolutely awesome. But if you just get out of your comfort zone, you will experience that. And I mean, things like, you know, sort of uh, um, what, what were we were saying earlier about, we, we mentioned about like, us talking about politics or whatever and, and people changing their mind. It's like you can be so comfortable in your life that you will never change your mind on something and no one knows everything. So if you push yourself out of your comfort zone, it's amazing how you can actually change your mind about things. Mm. You know, so it's like people who have a certain entrenched opinion meeting someone who has the opposite and then finding out that, you know, we've got some common ground here that I didn't exactly. expect. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Isn't like sort of um, pushing yourself out of your comfort zone and embracing the unknown, isn't that like kind of scary or the very least maybe uncomfortable? Oh, yeah, definitely. Oh, with, without a doubt. And, and that is why it, it is pushing I really think you have to push yourself out of your comfort zone. I mean, I, I, I mentioned earlier, I, I can literally sit in a restaurant and eat on my own. Um, I used to be quite shy. In fact, I think I am quite shy sometimes. But um, in the beginning, that was just the worst thing for me. I mean, I used to hate it, but, you know, I mean, when you're traveling, backpacking, whatever, and you know, at lunch, you're going to, oh, I don't eat McDonald's, but, you know, fast food place, something like that. That's different. But then, you know, you come home and you're you know, sort of in the hostel or in your tent or whatever, and you're on your own. And sometimes you just think, yeah, well, I want to go to a restaurant. I might want to eat something actually half decent. Um, and so you have to push yourself to do that. And mm. it was really, really hard for me. Now I find it quite easy. So do you still find you're, you're pushing your comfort zone? Yeah, definitely. You, you don't get used to, I mean, because you've been traveling so much and you've been pushing yourself all the time. There, there's still more to go? Definitely. I mean, I think there's, there, there, there's, I mean, well, there's so much more traveling to do. It's just not funny. Um, but I think even no matter how much I've traveled, um, you know, when you get your bike on your own and you're like, okay, going to this new place, you kind of, you have to have a couple of days to kind of get into the swing of things of being on my own and being on the road on my own. Once you're on the trip. Yeah, exactly. Once you're on the trip. So um, nothing will hold me back doing the trip, but then it's like, you know, okay. And, And you kind of warm up to it again. But that's actually traveling and, and, you know, so every time you have to kind of just, as I say, warm up to it again. And I'm sure there's lots of places and, and things to do traveling wise that I don't even know what is out of my comfort zone, but I'm, I'm quite sure I'm going to come across it always. But in life there's, oh, constantly, I mean, I'm, I'm literally in the, in the middle of changing careers. I'm in a 56 years old and I'm like, okay need to do something different now because you do just get used to it so um it's it's again I, I think it's also having that curious mind will help you push yourself out of your comfort zone but you have to think about things you know and and, and um yeah. and so you think it's it's you're traveling you're pushing yourself your comfort zone pushing yourself out of your comfort zone and experiencing the positives from that that's allowing you to do your career change right now at 56 yeah. years old yeah definitely De- definitely, it, 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 it's a confidence thing. So, 
um, the more you do it. I mean, as I said, I mean, I used to be far more shy than, than I am now. And um, the more you push yourself out of your comfort zone, the easier it gets, actually. Mm. Yeah. What advice would you give or have for someone who's considering doing some sort of big trip like the many you've done? Um, well, first of all, just, just simply do it. Like, like, don't let anybody else hold you back. Um, and be, be pragmatic. So, um, as I said about, like, you know, drinking at night or going out, everyone needs to find their own level of, of, of pragmatism and what it is. And, and you need to be a little bit pragmatic in that. Um, and, and listen to yourself because, um, you know, everyone will give you, oh, you mentioned the motorbikes earlier. I mean, people will tell you every kind of motorbike that you should be riding to do a trip. And, and it's rubbish. You need to find what you're comfortable with. So I would say to boil it down, I would say, yeah, don't hold yourself back. Do it. Be pragmatic, but don't let too many people confuse you as they give you. Lorraine, thanks so much. It was just great getting a tiny little taste of, of your adventures. We'll have to do it again sometime. Thanks very much for the invite. I was speaking with Lorraine Spence from her home in Switzerland. You can read more about Lorraine and her travels by visiting her website, lorrainespence.com. Of course, we have that link and some photos of Lorraine and her adventures in the show notes for this episode on our website, adventureriderradio.com. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. about wraps up another episode of adventure rider radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it special thanks to our producer elizabeth martin and you thank you very much for being a part of this by listening to the show hey we have another show out called adventure rider radio raw it comes out once a month it comes out on the 21st of each month and you can find that anywhere you find podcasts but of course all this information is available at our website adventureriderradio.com now the show is built on a model of advertising and listener support we need your support drop by the website adventureriderradio.com and click on support anything $10 or more will get you an adventure rider radio sticker anything $50 or more get you a shout out on our raw show that I just told you about and we would really appreciate it if you would consider our patron option which means that you would be there every month for us anyway check it out we'd, we'd appreciate that very much time to get out there and ride your bike my name is Jim Martin thank you so much for listening and I will talk to you next week from races to places and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.